Chapter 2 of The Romance of Modern Astronomy. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Romance of Modern Astronomy by Hector McPherson. Chapter 2 Effects of the Earth's Motions. The motion of the Earth is the magic key which unlocks the door of the mysteries of the everyday phenomena of nature. Day and night, the seasons, twilight, quote, the midnight sun, end quote, the long polar night, all these phenomena are easily understood when we regard them in the light of the rotation of the earth on its axis, the inclination of this axis, and the revolution of the earth round the sun. To the first of these facts, the rotation of the earth, we are indebted for the phenomenon of day and night. The earth is constantly whirling round on its axis from west to east, and the result is the apparent motion of the heavenly bodies from east to west. By this motion of rotation, we get the first and most obvious measure of time, the day which measures in length only a few minutes under 24 hours. A good idea of the rapid rate at which the earth is turning on its axis may be had by pointing a telescope to a star, and by noticing how swiftly the star passes out of the field of view. At sunrise and sunset, too, we notice plainly the difference made by a few minutes. Owing to the fact that the Earth has an atmosphere, daylight does not disappear whenever the sun sinks below the horizon. The rays of the sun still strike the upper regions of our atmosphere, and thus we have twilight and the gradual darkening of the sky and disappearance of daylight. The chief effect of the Earth's revolution round the sun, an effect which affects the periods of light and darkness, is the change of the seasons, spring, summer, autumn, and winter. This ceaseless cycle, to which the Earth's inhabitants are so accustomed that they scarcely stop to ask themselves the why and wherefore, is due chiefly to one astronomical fact. The axis of the Earth, the imaginary line joining the north and south poles, is inclined to the orbit of our planet by about 67 degrees. This explains the seasons and the differing lengths of day and night on the various parts of the Earth. Most of us have heard of such phenomena as the long polar night, the midnight sun, etc., but few really understand that these phenomena are due to the same causes which give us our long periods of daylight in summer and of darkness in winter. At the spring equinox, day and night are equal all over the world, at the poles and at the equator. At this period, both poles of the earth are equally exposed to the solar rays. Neither is tilted towards the sun more nor less than the other. But as the earth moves gradually round, the northern hemisphere becomes more and more inclined towards the solar beams, while the southern hemisphere is more and more inclined away from the orb of day. Spring is giving place to summer. At the summer solstice, the northern hemisphere is tilted towards the sun at its greatest inclination while it is midwinter in the south. The days and nights were equal at the spring equinox. At the summer solstice, the days are much longer than the nights in the northern hemisphere, the opposite being the case in the south. After the 21st of June, the period of darkness increases in the northern hemisphere and decreases in the southern 
until on the 21st of September, daylight and darkness are equal all over the globe. In its cycle of change, the axis of the Earth is again upright relative to the Sun. After the autumn equinox is passed, the northern hemisphere tilts more and more away from the Sun, while the southern comes more and more into sunlight. The result is that by the 21st of December, when the winter solstice is reached, the northern hemisphere has a short period of daylight and a long period of darkness, while the reverse state of affairs takes place in the south. The northern hemisphere is tilted from the sun at its greatest tilt. After the winter solstice, the period of daylight increases in the northern hemisphere and decreases in the southern, until we come again to the 21st of March, when at the spring equinox, day and night are equal all over the world. In the early ages of the world, before astronomy had been developed, men did not understand this revolution of our dwelling place round the sun. They only knew, just as the unlearned know today, that at the winter solstice, in the middle of December, the sun rose in the southeast, moved across the southern sky, rising to a low altitude above the horizon, and set in the southwest in the afternoon. We notice that after the solstice is passed, the sun rises a little earlier each morning, and sets a little later each evening, that it rises farther east each morning, and sets farther west each evening, until on the 21st of March, the orb of day rises exactly in the east, and sets exactly in the west. Likewise, we notice that as more and more is seen of the sun, the earth wakens out of its winter sleep. Trees begin to bud, grass to grow. In short, nature revives. As one writer puts it, quote, The melting of the ice and snow, the gradual reviving of brown soils, the flowing of sap through branches apparently lifeless, the mist of foliage beginning to enshroud every twig until the whole country is enveloped in a soft haze of palest green and red. All these are nature's signs of spring. End quote. Then, as spring gradually passes into summer, the sun rises every morning a little farther north and sets every evening a little farther north, while every day it rises higher and higher in the sky. Then on the 21st of June, the, quote, longest day, end quote, it rises northeast and sets northwest, and is about 18 hours above the horizon. This is the period of longest daylight, because, as explained, the northern hemisphere is turned directly towards the sun, but the period of greatest heat is about a month later in coming. If the earth in the atmosphere could retain none of the heat which is showered down from the sun, the period of greatest heat would exactly coincide with the summer solstice. However, the accumulation of heat retards the time of the greatest heat until about a month after the solstice, the end of July and the beginning of August. Similarly, the period of greatest cold is a month later than that of least sunlight, at the end of January and the beginning of February. Gradually, summer passes into autumn. After the summer solstice is passed, the sun begins to rise later and later each morning, and sets a little earlier every evening. And in addition, the orb of day does not rise so high in the heavens. This continues until the autumn equinox, when the sun rises due east and sets due west. In fact, day and night are equal all over the world, and the conditions are the same as those at the spring equinox. 
but there is one difference. The weather at the spring equinox is generally cold and uncertain, while at the corresponding period in autumn it is summer-like and pleasant. This is due to the same cause which was previously mentioned, that after summer solstice the earth continues to store up heat, while after winter the earth is slow to absorb heat. In short, the autumn equinox generally takes place in summer-like weather. As an American astronomer expresses it, quote, Not until falling leaves begin to flutter about our feet, and grapes and apples ripen in orchard and vineyard, do we realize that autumn is really here, that everything is mellow and finished. Our hemisphere is turning yet farther away from that sun on which all growth and development depend. When trees are a glory of red and yellow and russet brown, when corn stands in full shocks in fields, and day after day of warmth and sunshine follow through royal October, it seems impossible to believe that slowly and surely winter can be approaching. But soon chilly winds whistle through trees from which the bright leaves are almost gone. A thin skin of ice crystals shoots across wayside pools at evening, and speedily shivering winter is upon us. Just before Christmas, this part of our earth is tipped its farthest away from the sun. Then for a few days, the hours of darkness are at their longest. The sap has withdrawn far into the roots of the trees until the cold shall abate. Leaden skies drop snowflakes, and earth sleeps under a mantle of white. End quote. This description applies only to the temperate zones of the earth. As we go northwards, we approach the exaggerated aspects of the same phenomena, the midnight sun and the long polar night. The cause of these phenomena is a source of difficulty to many, but it is quite easily understood with a little thought. At midnight in the end of June, in Scotland, there is very little darkness. The sky never grows actually dark. We seem to see the glow of the sun almost up to midnight after it sinks in the northwest. As we go farther north, we see more and more of the sun. We follow it farther and farther until it goes just below the horizon and no more. Still farther north, it skirts the horizon and is visible all night at the 66th parallel of latitude. Beyond this, the sun does not disappear at all in summer, and there are six months of daylight. The phenomenon of the midnight sun draws many to the northern parts of Sweden, Norway, and Russia, where for a few days at the summer solstice, the sun merely skirts the northern horizon. A good description of the midnight sun is given by Paul du Chailu in his account of his travels in Scandinavia. Quote, the brilliancy of the splendid orb varies in intensity, like that of sunset and sunrise, according to the state of moisture of the atmosphere. One day it will be of a deep red color, tinging everything with a roseate hue and producing a drowsy effect. There are times when the changes in the color between the sunset and the sunrise might be compared to the variations of a charcoal fire, now burning with a fierce red glow, then fading away and rekindling with greater brightness. There are days when the sun has a pale whitish appearance, and when even it can be looked at for six or seven hours before midnight. As this hour approaches, the sun becomes less glowing, gradually changing into more brilliant shades as it dips towards the lowest point of its course. 
Its motion is very slow, and for quite a while it apparently follows the line of the horizon, during which there seems to be a pause, as when the sun reaches noon. This is midnight. For a few minutes the glow of sunset mingles with that of sunrise, and one cannot tell which prevails. But soon the light becomes slowly and gradually more brilliant, announcing the birth of another day. How beautiful was the midnight! How red and gorgeous was the sun! How drowsy was the landscape! Nature seemed to sleep in the mist of sunshine. Crystal dewdrops glittered like precious stones as they hung from the blades of grass, the petals of wild flowers, and the leaves of the birch trees. End quote. Farther north, the sun is constantly visible, and the North Pole has six months' continuous light. But there is another side to the picture. For six months, there is continuous night. And even in the north of Sweden, Norway, and Russia, there are days in midwinter when the sun does not rise, just as in summer there are days when it does not set. Du Chailu, after describing the midnight sun, has the following remarks on the winter in the same region, which is worth quoting. Quote, the grass turns yellow, the leaves change their color, and wither and fall. The swallows and other migrating birds fly towards the south. Twilight comes once more. The stars, one by one, make their appearance, shining brightly in the pale blue sky. The moon shows itself again as the queen of night, and lights and cheers the long and dark days of the Scandinavian winter. The time comes at last when the sun disappears entirely from sight. The heavens appear in a blaze of light and glory, and the stars and the moon pale before the aurora borealis. End quote. Such are the various phenomena resulting from the fact that the axis of the earth is inclined to the plane, or level, of its orbit. Were the axis upright, there would be no seasons, no springtime, no summer, no autumn, no winter season. There would be no midnight sun and no long polar night. In fact, the continuous state of affairs would be an everlasting springtime without the charm of our earthly spring. This seems to be the state of affairs on Jupiter, where the axis is nearly perpendicular to the planet's orbit. Another fact has also something to do with the seasons, though only in a modified degree. As the orbit of the Earth is not a perfect circle, but an ellipse, the Earth is at one point of its orbit nearer to the Sun than at its other. The Earth is nearer to the Sun by three million miles in our winter than in our summer. At first, this seems a paradox, that the time of closest approach to the orb of day is the time of greatest cold. A little consideration, however, soon disposes of the difficulty. In the northern hemisphere, the decreased distance of the sun modifies the severities of winter, while its increased distance mitigates the heat of summer. In the southern hemisphere, on the other hand, the time of greatest heat takes place when the sun is nearest, and the time of greatest cold when the sun is at its greatest distance. Thus, the climate in the northern hemisphere is rendered more equable than that in the south. Thus, we understand that it is owing to the inclination of the axis of the earth that the sun's apparent path in the heavens, the ecliptic, is tilted, and that the sun rises so much higher in the sky in summer than in winter. A similar line of reasoning applies to our satellite, the moon. 
there is much less moonlight in the summer than in the winter. At a first consideration, it seems as if this was owing to increased daylight, the moonlight not being required and consequently not noticed, but such is not the case. There is really less moonlight in summer than in winter. This arises from the fact that before the moon can be full and shining with complete radiance, it must be, quote, in opposition, end quote, to the sun, that is, situated in the diametrically opposite portion of the sky. In winter, the sun is traversing the lower zodiacal constellations, and as a result, the moon at the full phase passes through the higher. The full moon at midwinter has the same situation as the sun in midsummer. Thus, in winter, we get more moonlight than sunlight. In summer, the conditions are reversed. The sun is in the higher constellations. Consequently, the full moon at midsummer occupies the place of the sun at midwinter, and thus there is more sunlight than moonlight. Instead of shining from on high with silvery radiance, the moon, in summer, creeps through the lower constellations, gleaming with a golden hue which harmonizes with the period of summertime. As Mr. Maunder puts it, quote, the evasive moon recognizes that the season belongs by right to her more powerful brother, and timidly skirts the south as if anxious to escape notice. End quote. The apparent yearly motion of the sun is due to two causes, the motion of the earth and the inclination of the earth's axis. The apparent motion of the sun is not itself visible, but we can trace it in an apparent drift of the stars into the sunlight. The stars, as a result of the sun's apparent motion amongst them, set four minutes earlier each night. In a fortnight, or a month, this makes an appreciable difference in the aspect of the sky. For instance, at 10 p.m. in the beginning of January, Orion and the winter constellations occupy prominent positions in the southern heavens. At the same hour a month later, they have moved considerably to the west, while in March they are beginning to pass over towards the western horizon. By watching these changes with care and attention, the ancient astronomers were enabled with tolerable accuracy to trace the apparent pathway of the sun among the stars. A word may be said here as to the difference of the day measured by the sun, quote, the solar day, end quote, and that measured by the stars, quote, the sidereal day, End quote. Sidereal time is the exact time required for one star to move from the meridian round to the meridian again. In fact, it is the exact time required by the Earth to rotate on its axis. But the sidereal day is not the ordinary day. Were the Earth standing still, it would be so. But our planet not only whirls round on its axis, it is also moving round the sun. As a consequence of the motion of the earth, which gives rise to an apparent motion of the sun, the sun appears to come to the meridian four minutes later each day if we reckon time by the sidereal clock. In other words, the day measured by the sun is four minutes longer than the day measured by the stars, and the difference amounts to exactly one day in each year. Now, sidereal time is in reality the only true measurement of the day, 
because it is the exact time of the rotation of the Earth's axis, but it is impossible to measure our ordinary time by this method. Professor Todd puts it very clearly in the following words, quote, Sidereal noon comes at all hours of the day and night during the progress of the year. Plainly, then, sidereal time is not a fit standard for regulating the affairs of ordinary life, for while it would answer for a fortnight or so, the displacement of four minutes daily would in six months have all the world breakfasting after sunset, staying awake all through the night, and going to bed in the middle of the forenoon, end quote. The difficulty cannot be exactly solved by taking the solar day instead of the sidereal, for, as Professor Todd says, quote, begin on any day of the year and observe the sun's transit of the meridian as you did that of a star. The instant when the sun's center is on the meridian is known as apparent noon. If you repeat the observation every day for a year and compare the intervals between successive transits, you will find them varying in length by many seconds, because they are all apparent solar days. They will not all be equal, as in the case of the star. By taking the average of all the intervals between the sun's transit, that is, the mean of all the apparent solar days in the course of the year, an invariable standard is obtained, like that from the stars themselves. End quote. Thus, we have the mean solar day by which all the clocks and watches in everyday life are regulated. End of chapter 2